Welcome to Schooled by Cinema. This is the film class you won't want to sleep through. Um, this season, we're looking at screenwriting as we dive in a little bit deeper to the, the whole process of the of filmmaking. And I am joined by Zach Vasquez to discuss Barton Fink. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I am very excited to discuss this movie. This is uh, not something... I'm surprised it didn't jump to my brain when I started discussing and reading about screenwriting as a topic for this season, but I'm glad you picked it. Um, so as we jump in, this is the first question I kind of ask, um, but what does screenwriting mean to you? Hmm. Um, I suppose it's, uh, I mean, it's a very basic answer, but like the script is the foundation for a movie. Um, uh -huh. I am not, someone as who thinks that uh the writing of the film is necessarily always the most important uh -huh. uh, i think that film is a visual medium first and foremost and that a good uh director or a good uh you know elements the visual elements whether it's good direction whether it's good performance whether it's good cinematography what have you uh can propel a poor script and make you can make a good movie even with a poor script yes. you can make a you can take a good script and you can still get a good movie even if the the you know visual aspect isn't as good but i think it's actually harder to hmm. do that Interesting. Um, yeah there's there's maybe a couple examples of movies i think kind of like shit but have a good script that mm -hmm. I think still work <laughs> uh, much more likely uh, you're going to get something where you can tell that there's a good idea in there, but it's execution just doesn't work. So for me, like screenplays are fascinating. Um, you know, I'm a writer. I don't really write screenplays these days. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have tried my hand at it before. I've written, I wrote a couple, didn't get anywhere with them. Um, I'm more of a, of a fiction prose writer these days and journalism and whatnot. But uh you know, I still have like a lot of love for it, but uh, I, what I find fascinating about uh, screenplays is how they've evolved over time from a scenario back in the day where it was really just you wrote out like what happens into what they are now, where it's kind of this industry in and of itself where working screenwriters will write scripts that never get made and you can be a working screenwriter and you know, sell 15 scripts and never get one made. And it's just kind of become its own weird cotton industry, cottage industry on top of, you know, actual, what it actually does when you get a finished film. Um, so yeah, I, that's a kind of a long-winded answer, and I probably didn't actually answer the question. No, but. I love that, but I, I like that you brought up the evolution of screenwriting because it's extremely true. And as you see in this movie, it's like people would keep screenwriters uh, it on commission basically to work for the studios mm -hmm. and keep producing at, versus now where it's like more like it's a hoarding of screen screenplays versus sc mm -hmm. you know the actual screenwriters it's like they 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 are like oh this is a great concept let's hold on to this for you for, for a future date and it might never get made or it might like completely evolve into something differently mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think what this movie uh, shows is interesting is that, like, how to put this, um, like, back in the day, 
in the I, I don't know if this would have necessarily changed maybe the 70s a little bit mm -hmm. probably the 70s after the fall of the studio system uh as it was before but no one really looked at screenwriting as an art form certainly not as an art form mm -hmm. and not even really a vocation like it was the job that writers took to make money uh but mm -hmm. you would they would pick writers from other places they would they would buy stories from magazines or they would buy stories or you know they would buy books to adapt short stories anything like that and the writers that they brought on for the most part had established themselves elsewhere as writers like the the, the you know playwrights novelists magazine writers short story writers things like that um and you know for them it was it was mostly a case of I am doing this, it's, it's kind of like, a, uh, you know, it was much more a factory line job, like everything in those days. Mm -hmm. Eventually that started changing and you did have writers that really cared about their scripts and wanted that vision to translate, but it was few, few and far between. If you look at like the evolution of it back, back in like the 30s, 40s, you had a couple instances of screenwriters moving on to become directors, mostly because they, they were tired of their scripts being changed by other directors. So a few famous mm -hmm. examples would be like Preston Sturgis, who we're talking about Bart Fink, and there's not a, not many um, cinematic influences on the Coen brothers as obvious and as heavy as Preston Sturgis, uh, the great writer-director of slapstick comedies in the 40s, like Sullivan's Travels and the um, Palm Beach story, The Lady Eve. He was one of those, he was one of the very first to make that jump from screenwriter to director. Billy Wilder, who also kind of came about through a lot of screwball comedies, he followed suit, Ernest Lubitsch, guys like that, uh, specifically because they wanted to have more control over the things they wrote. But for the most part, that was not, it, that was not the case. Nowadays, you see more of that, like you start a screenwriter, maybe a director, or even if you're not that, you know, you're still putting more, I think, artistic effort into a script or more effort in a business sense. Like, what do I write that will sell? You know, mm -hmm. there's more emphasis on the screenplay, I feel like today and the idea of the screenplay than there used to be. And I don't necessarily know that that's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I do think that through that, uh, there is something is lost there when you focus maybe more on that than the visual aspect of, of films. I do think you see that a lot. You see a high concept or concept or, mm -hmm. and there's less, and I think, I don't think it's just a, I think the, the way screenwriting becomes is a small part of that. I think there's other things that explain it more, but I just feel like for a visual medium where we're at in film right now, it's maybe the least interesting time for visuals. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I don't want to blame that on like, the, the the culture of screenwriting. I think that's a very small part of it, but I do think that it is connected to that. I, I understand that and I feel that we have reached this time where screenwriting has become this process where it's kind of like secluded over in this other place. And then you have all these like other pieces that take precedent over it and there's so many voices that have to be heard in order to make the final product that it all becomes a little bit of white noise sometimes versus what the actual start of the process was 
Yeah, and I think you see that too with the way that like TV has kind of supplanted movies in some ways as mm -hmm. writers medium um in terms of that in terms of like selling scripts and everything. Uh and you know I'm not denigrating writers. Obviously we just went through the strike uh mm -hmm. and completely in support of them and I'm happy that they came to a conclusion that was uh beneficial to them. Um yeah. but I think that you see a lot of uh there's an emphasis put on the writing in a way that I don't think actually relates to the quality of the writing. Mm. Um, and you see a lot with the transition from movies, TV, and you when you when somebody says like, oh, all the good stories are on TV, like that's mm -hmm. where the writers go. It's sad because it's like, but that's not what I'm, that's not what I went to the movies for in the first place. Mm -hmm. Like I went there for a visual experience, and you're not getting that out of TV for the most part. All uh, most mm -hmm. of the TV shows people say like, oh, it looks like a movie. I don't, I don't agree with that. And I think that there's this emphasis just on content, uh, mm -hmm. with, you know, it's like characters and story and, I, and it all sounds good, but it's like, it just feels like it's overtaking the the point of these visual mediums, which should you, you should be getting, uh, you know, a lot of your, you should be getting the majority of your emotional investment. The return of that should be visual. Um, and I don't think that that's the case so much these days. And I think that the way that people talk about it, it's it just it reduces art to content and it becomes kind of like, well, this this thing, this show or this movie, these characters are like my thing. I'm a Star Wars guy, I'm mm -hmm. a Game of Thrones guy, I'm a Barbie girl, mm -hmm. I'm a, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's just it just reduces it to like lifestyle branding. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think you could do that before. You would say my favorite movie is this and the thing you were thinking of wasn't necessarily like you know, like, oh, what are the characters going to do next? And there's not all this emphasis on, like, the writing of it. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling here. It just reminds me <laughs> of when, <laughs> when Game of Thrones was ending. Mm -hmm. And I was working an office job. I would have all of these guys in the office who were all just, you know, they're, they're talking about, like, the latest Marvel movie, the latest superhero movie, Game of Thrones. It was, like, a few big franchise things that they would mm -hmm. always talk about. And when Game of Thrones was ending during that last season, they would always talk about how bad it was and they would always say the writing's really bad. Mm -hmm. And I agree. I think that uh, Game of Thrones, I don't think it was ever that good. And I think the ending was really bad. I still watched it, but whatever. Mm -hmm. So I don't agree with him in that. But my <laughs> about it was like, you haven't read a book since, you know, you were in junior high. You watch yeah. nothing exclusively, but like movies and TV shows that have like 16, right? Like you wouldn't know what good writing is. You're mm -hmm. just saying like it's an excuse that people can use there because like this franchise thing didn't go the way they want, so they're just going to say that the writing is bad. And I feel like that's what the idea of screenwriting has become. It's all just plot story. This character did this thing that I don't like, so it's bad. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, so I don't know. Like the whatever art was there is, I think it's fewer and far between now. I understand that I, it feels like a like a disconnect between all the pieces that we have going on and 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 the fact that Netflix has quote unquote disrupted everything so much and Marvel has disrupted everything so much I say disrupted in quotes as a like they say that as if it's a good thing and we're learning now that it's not a good thing because yeah. 
it's harming every the way that everyone consumes everything. And what happens is that the screenwriting ends up taking the the pro like the it ends up being kind of like the scapegoat for it because that's usually the start of like where this film or TV or whatever comes from. So it ends up being like, Oh, we have to blame the writing on why this doesn't work for us, but instead not looking at the entire process that goes into making this movies and how many voices are, are heard and how many, um, how many you know surveys and reviews they go through to make it come out to its final product and so i think as we go forward we're going to see kind of like that 70s resurgence of like kind of more uh human-based stories because people are so sick of like everything that's been previously happening because we we just kind of need that again i mean i would hope so um yeah i mean he's optimistic about that but I mean, to me, it's just a thing of like, the only thing people really like about those Marvel movies, really, when you break it down, is the storytelling. And I don't think they have good storytelling, but that's what people respond to there, because they're certainly not responding to any of the visuals. Those movies, except for like maybe two, <laughs> look like garbage. They do. They always have. They look expensive, but they look like expensive. Yeah. Garbage. Um, so then when one is bad, you know, you're gonna blame the writing, but like, if the direction was better, if the cinematography was better, if it had something visual to be right, it wouldn't mm -hmm. matter. A counter example to that is like Giallo films. It's a big difference between mm -hmm. a Marvel movie and a Giallo movie. But a G I bring it up because a Giallo, there's very few Giallo movies that have anything resembling a coherent script or story. You're, you're correct. You. Like they don't make any sense, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. You're not, it doesn't matter. You're not there for that. Like, mm -hmm. and those, those scripts don't at the end of the day, like are just, you know, they're, they're just uh, general directions for a mm -hmm. visual storyteller to give you something that is going to connect with you on a visceral level. And so mm -hmm. if you don't have that and your script is bad and it's, it, it, people are going to, you know, reduce everything, but it's not even that they reduce it to bad writing. That's 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 what makes yeah. me mad. It's like you wouldn't know good writing. What you're responding to is a very like surface level. I don't like the way this plot unfolded. I don't like mm -hmm. the way this character did a thing because it doesn't. It, I I thought the character to do something else, and that's such a shallow reading of art to me. I love a good story, and you know, I'm sure we'll talk about like 40s films since we're talking about a, a mm -hmm. movie set. Those those movies had amazing plot, like amazing story. Uh, Hollywood movies then, you know, were very story driven. But at the end of the day, I don't think plot matters that much in writing. Um, mm. I think a good plot can certainly is is has its own charms, and it's it's you know you get you get a certain pleasure from like a precise work of plotting. And don't, don't get me wrong, that's great. But at the end of the day, like that's not that important either, no matter what kind of writing it is you're dealing with, whether it's prose or, you know, theater or film, uh, you know, th there's something beyond that. And I think each of those mediums have their own things, but like a, a movie, a play, certainly a novel, like can be a great work without being plot driven um, mm -hmm. or without having something resembling a uh, standard plot. 
so I think that's another problem with where screenwriting is now. It's so based on like, okay, if we're going by this, you know, writer who's selling his book or is on Twitter with his thread mm -hmm. of like, like, your character needs to do this, but then needs to ask what next and then do this. Mm -hmm. So like here five act structure, blah, blah, all that hack shit. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> you know at the same time, you know, you, you have, you do, you should know some rules before you're going to break them. So the guy that's just like, I'm just going to write my thing and just fly by, I'm going to write this. That's not always good either. You, you need to have an understanding of the basics of storytelling before you then fly off the handle and reinvent the wheel. I, uh, so I'm not just saying everyone should do that, but I feel like with screenwriting in particular, you know, the, the, the turning it into like this guru, this screenwriting guru mm -hmm. is a very recognizable figure. So much so that like the other great, I think the two great movies about screenwriting, Bard and Fink and Adaptation, Adaptation, mm -hmm. that, that character, Brian Cox plays that character, Robert, mm -hmm. based on a real guy. Uh, and, you know, I won't name names, but there are, if you go on Twitter, there are any number, there are a couple guys who are kind of known for that and mm -hmm. annoying fucking people in there. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, but like, I, I think you bring up an important part when it comes to the screenwriting process and why there is almost this disassociation between um, people and being able to uh, work with the story they are given is that we are now in a completely self ego driven environment based on like the internet and the algorithm not to completely blame them but we are on that we are all built to have a world that surrounds us in the things that we like and adhere to our tastes so if we are not constantly getting that feedback to us that our take of our tastes and what we like sometimes our some people's brains just cannot comprehend it and don't want to so it's like they don't like the game like the newest whatever because it doesn't comprehend it doesn't fit in what they actually like so they're going to write it off and i feel like that's kind of one of the dangerous parts of the time we're living in and why you know screenwriting is sometimes the most because people sometimes don't want to blame the people that they know, which are usually the directors. Like the directors are the people you know most likely in the film environment. Like you don't really know the screenwriters. So we have very little like home, like everyone knows the screenwriters' names nowadays. So it's like you're more likely to blame the unknown than the known. Well, I've seen screenwriters complain in the past that they don't get the credit for the story. You yeah. Know, deserve. But it's like, you also don't get the blame when it goes wrong. You know, that, mm -hmm. there's, I, I'm sure there is a thing of a screenwriter's jail. I mean, I know there is. There are some high name <laughs> screenwriters that, uh, yeah. you know, they're movies. But those are guys who became kind of the auteurs of, like Joe Esterhaas is the, the main one I can mm -hmm. think of. They had this guy who was, you know, at one point the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood, mm -hmm. who was selling scripts for millions of dollars, and he had a very specific uh, brand, you know, he was the guy who did these, like, high-concept erotic thrillers or, or you know, sexy uh, blockbusters, and eventually, you know, after several bombs, it was like, okay, you're, you're kind of, you're not making those movies anymore, mm -hmm. and he's, uh, you know, he, he's got the rest of his career out of jail. So there are a few examples like that, 
But for the most part, I, I don't really think there's such a thing as like a screenwriter's jail in the same way that there's a director's jail, you know? Yeah. Taking uh, that blame for that. And I, I just think it's a case of like, I mean, except for in Barton Fink, which is funny because he literally does end <laughs> up in screenwriter's jail. But the thing with Barton Fink is that like, as I'm sure we'll discuss, like eventually at the end of the day, that's about a guy who comes into Hollywood uh, with no real understanding of what the industry is about. And then, yeah. you know, it basically like, I, I think it's easy to look at that movie as on the surface, a film about the way that like the system will grind down the individual and the way that like commerce or what have you, capitalism, if you want to go there, like will grind down art. But if you really mm-hmm. think about it, nothing in that movie that Barton, like Barton is responsible for everything kind of that happens to him. Yeah. And it's easy yeah, to say I like, mean- I, I think that that movie, I think that there is a reading of that movie in which like Barton Fink is is not necessarily uh, about the like destruction of the artistic spirit, but we can go we, we can go over that more. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's just the idea. Like, I think that if you were to go back during that time and you know talk to all of these writers about like, oh, what does a good screenplay? They would just say like, no, you just need the story, and then you just need to learn how to format mm-hmm. it right. Like, not you know, they'd laugh you out of the room if you're like, well, here I have this like you know five act structure and the character needs to be introduced on page three and like the inciting incident needs to happen okay like that that's a whole new thing that i think has turned it into has gotten away from uh what it was always supposed to be which is you know a scenario for then a visual play so yeah, and I, I, I find that, I think it's very interesting that Barton Fink is, like, he's one of those people who's, like, ah, I can't remember what movie this was in. I've heard this before, but you can't go, you can't do something successfully if you turn your nose down at it, is basically, like, a paraphrasing of the of it. And, like, his idea is that he has this very high-minded way that he feels like things are going to be done and how they're going to be done on his level when they're just asking him to do something you know simple quote unquote simple way of you know writing a wrestling picture which i i love that aspect of it being a wrestling picture because it's such a weird like specific because I feel like I've never heard of that before, but I just love it. And they're like, yeah, a wrestling picture. That's the thing we're going to make. <laughs> yeah, that's the picture. Well, and Gary, what do you mean? Um, yeah. It's funny because like, you know, when that movie, like the stuff I'm just in, like the wrestling picture is considered the most B-level B-picture. And yeah. today recording this, they just released the trailer for A24's The Iron Claw. Yes family wrestling drama that's probably going to get it nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Yeah. So it's just funny to think, like, you know, how far that's come. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is really funny. Not that they're releasing, you know, like, an Oscar-nominated wrestling picture every other month or anything. You have this and yeah. Darren R. and Oscar TV, and that's about it. But, like, <laughs> So what is your relationship with, like, the Coen brothers and Barton, Barton Fink in general? Um, uh, so let's see. I, I think the first Coen Brothers movie I would have seen would have been Fargo, uh, mm-hmm. when I was 13, 14. 
Um, mm-hmm. It would have been, I would, I didn't see it in theaters, um, but I remember that was like a year when, yeah, I was always a movie fan as a kid. I think my taste, obviously, like a lot of young male movie nerds was all like, you know, tended towards horror in those adolescent mm-hmm. years. And then I think that, you know, like 97, 98 was when I started kind of moving away from that into, you know, other stuff. Um, obviously, like, you know, hitting the, the big ones for like young teen boys like Tarantino and mm-hmm. guys like that. And whatnot. But it's also the David time. Fincher. When, yep. Yeah. It's also the time when you have people like Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson mm-hmm. making their names. And, you know, so it's leading you kind of away from just like genre cinema into something a little bit mm-hmm. more interesting. I think that the two films that uh, didn't really fit into any of the genre stuff and maybe weren't quite on their on the face of things as formally, like immediately formally, like interesting in the way that like a Wes Anderson movie, you know, you can look at a frame of that and the quirky costuming and the, you know, the the camera angles and stuff. Or same with kind of Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, where there's mm-hmm. like lots of cameras moving real fast and so stuff going on. The two that like, they're both crime movies. So there's that, there it is facing genre, but they're more measured and more, I think a little bit more maybe mature than a 13 year old, 14 year old would usually prefer which were LA Confidential and Fargo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those came out within a couple of years of each other. And I remember seeing both of them on video. My parents probably rented them and I watched them. And both of those kind of, I remember opening up a thing for me where I felt like, ooh, I'm watching like an adult movie, but I was so hooked by them. Yeah. That's okay, like, and it's not that, it, like they both have lots of, you know, violence and, you know, stuff that would attract like a, a teenage boy, but it was something deeper than that too. There was a, there was a, there was mm-hmm. like a rhythm that I got into. Um, and I could tell that these were like smart, deeply written stories. When you ask what movie I want to talk about there, I was going back and forth between a couple and LA Confidential was one of them. Um, but I felt like I might have a little bit more to talk about Powerfreak. Anyway, so I watched uh, Fargo uh, on video. And then soon after that, uh, The Big Lebowski came out and I watched that on video. And that was just like the funniest movie I'd ever seen. Um, this is before, <laughs> so I can kind of say like, you know, like, oh, I liked it before people, blah, blah, blah. But, <laughs> it was, it was, this was, this was before, like, you know, they had the Lebowski conventions and we, you know, dad had a, has a big Lebowski t-shirt and shit. Like, before, <laughs> but I just, yeah. And so, and then after that, it was just like, okay, who are these guys? I got to see everything they've done. Um, and so by the time I think, oh, brother, where art thou came out when I saw that in theaters, uh, I had caught up on probably everything they'd done, uh, by that point. And Barton Fink, um, pretty much from the first watch was, has always been floating up there in my favorites. Um, it probably is my favorite. I tend to go between that and Miller's Crossing, mm-hmm. uh, depending on which I've watched, uh, last uh so yeah but so barton fink um you know i I can't tell you when i would have first seen it it would have been around 98 99 maybe um i've seen it a million times since uh you know i think that one of the reasons i love it so much is that it is their most uh lynchian movie and Lynch mm-hmm. is probably my favorite filmmaker uh, mm-hmm. between 
Andrei Sulevsky, but it's a movie that I think uh, you can see a big Lynch influence on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels, it feels like one of his movies in certain ways without ever feeling, there are movies that try to do what he does and they generally don't work. But this one, I think just, it has that same feeling. There's something about it that is so hard to wrap your head around that I find myself returning to it uh, the most. You know, it's, it's one of those movies that has like, there's a mystery, not just in terms of like a mystery in the plot, but a mystery to the film itself that brings you back. Again, again. Yeah, because it's all it it re- remains unanswered. Like there's so many questions that it leaves you sitting with that you're just like, I will never really know the answers. It's all speculative to me about how any of this turns out at the end. Um, and I I'm with you. I think I saw Fargo like when I was in high school. Um, I think this was really one of the first movies I saw in college where I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of what movies can be. Um, I and then I kind of have caught up and I think I saw like Oh Brother Out There, which I think came out sometime when I was in high school early college age and then i've since pretty much caught up with everything except i have not seen miller's crossing which i do need to see um but i and i even saw the lady killers in theaters and um that is a wild movie in and of itself um the fact that they remade that yeah that's the only one i really haven't gone back to Uh, yeah i saw it in theaters and found it disappointing and i probably watched it once more like Mm -hmm. when it came out initially on video dvd and it i don't remember my opinion changing and i just haven't gone back to that's the only one of theirs that i don't like i like uh-huh. uh cruelty i think it's all cruelty is a fun movie that grows on you mm-hmm. i don't think it's, a good yeah. movie, but it's fun and i love every other one of theirs um but yeah i should probably go back to lady killers and give it one more shot that's yeah. the one that i was like i maybe i should go watch the lady killers again because i was just like i don't know why that popped up because i feel like i've seen a lot of their films repeatedly because they are extremely watchable like fargo like that's the thing about them is they they deal with heavy subjects but in a way that's you know comedic so it's a great balance so you can go back to them and not feel too much weighing on your soul after mm-hmm. watching them um so yeah, but I was like, maybe I should. But I remember being just completely baffled by the Lady Killers and like what they ended up doing with it and and how it happened. And I just, I, I will, I think I'll have to watch it again after this. Yeah, I, I feel like even their mm-hmm. movies that they're most like darkest or they're most magically painted, mm-hmm. something like uh, Mac wasn't there, are still relentlessly yeah. painting and invite copious rewatch. Uh, Lady Killers was just one that I thought like just missed the mark on a lot of stuff. But, you know, at the same time, like Intolerable Cruelty, I didn't like much at first. Uh, mm-hmm. Every rewatch, it's been a minute since I've seen that. But also, like, I thought when it first came out that um, Hail Caesar, which I believe is set in the same fictional uh, studio as Barton Fink. Um, oh, that would make sense. I think it is. If I'm wrong about that, I meant to look that up earlier. If I'm wrong about that, and someone's listening is, I'm an idiot, but I think that they both take place <laughs> capital uh studios mm-hmm. uh, when that first came out when i saw that in theaters i i thought that was kind of a letdown and a disappointment i thought it was fine mm-hmm. i didn't think it was a bad movie but i thought it was just like missing something i have since that has since gone up to become one of my favorites of theirs like every time i Mine watch too. it it's a little mm-hmm. higher on the list 
so you know maybe i owe maybe maybe next time i watch lady killers that'll be like oh no i was wrong it is it's not a misunderstood masterpiece but we'll see <laughs> uh, Gordon Fink was one well, that from, <laughs> Gordon Fink was one from the first time i saw it. i'm like oh, okay this is yeah this is, this is maybe their best it's kind of wild that they did this as a way to relieve their writer's block from Miller's Crossing, which is just such a funny, like, little, it's like, the uh, it's just like they went off to make something even more complicated almost mm -hmm. <laughs> when they're trying to, you know, deal with the writer's block of something else. The way that I read it, because, like, that's the story that goes around is that they got, they were blocked yeah. on writing Miller's Crossing, so they wrote mm -hmm. this as a way to like clear it. I've since gone on to read something where they said like, it wasn't so much they were blocked, like uh -huh. they were out of ideas as much as they had these different ideas and they didn't really know how to bring them together. Like, mm -hmm. they, they, you know, like writer's block, uh, you know, in the way that it's presented in Martin Fink and the way that people probably have experienced, the way that I've experienced it at times is like, I just don't have an idea. I don't know where to start. Nothing I write uh -huh. is working. I, th I don't think that was the case with them on Miller's Crossing. I think it was more of just like how, like, we don't know how to bring these disparate things in mm -hmm. together. So let's, you know, take a break and write something else in order. Like, I, I wrote an article where I compared it to, like, not so much writer's block as writer's congestion and mm -hmm. like a way to, like, clear those sinuses. Um, <laughs> I like that. And, and But I think the great way that they maybe disconnected themselves from Miller's, Miller's Crossing and by creating this screenplay is that they created something that's very, a very singular story about like one or two people, like the main two people, um, John Turo and John Goodman, you know, those are it. And they have all these kind of like outside characters. So it's a great way to like flush the system by creating kind of like one thing and moving through it through this one point of view. Um, from what I can tell, Miller's Crossing is like, it is from one point of view, but it's also like a bunch of different characters, but you can correct me. Yeah, Miller's Crossing is the this uh, very, there's a very labyrinthian plot to it. Yeah. Uh, very intentionally convoluted plot with a lot of different like ins and outs of the actual story. Mm -hmm. so I find it kind of funny that they had, that they got kind of stuck on that. And I, it's again, why I don't think it's really a case of like writer's block and more mm -hmm. of like how to because Miller's Crossing, kind of an adaptation of a mm -hmm. uh, book, which is The Glass Key by Dashiell okay. Hammett. Uh, if you've seen the movie of Dashiell Hammett's, the, the, the actual adaptation, and then you watch Miller's Crossing, like, you can see how, like, oh, like, mm -hmm. plot-wise, almost exactly the same. Um, they do make a lot of changes. The characters are different in certain ways. But, like, it really is almost, it's a very, it's it's a, it's close to just being a straight-up adaptation mm -hmm. of that book. Uh, or a remake of that movie. So, you know, I don't think it's a case of them getting caught on the plotting of like what happens mm -hmm. next, which is like what they were trying to do in the way they adapted it. How do they bring those threads together? Because um, mm -hmm. you know, it is different enough. Uh, but yeah, it's a case of that. Whereas Bart and Fink, I feel like Bart and Fink is the type of movie where they're like, all right, just kind of let the characters dictate mm -hmm. what happens um because it is a character study first and foremost um mm -hmm. even for one like that even for like if you see you see a lot of like 
filmmakers, you know, kind of like, okay, I'm going to shake off like the last thing that I got stuck on or the big movie that didn't work or the big movie that did work. And I'm going to do something small and intimate and simple, straightforward. And I don't know that Barnum Pink really is that because there's mm-hmm. so much going on with it. First of all, I mean, it's a period drama in and of itself. So like mm-hmm. those are all going to require more, you know, effort to write. But like, I don't know if they're more effort, but the details are going to matter more. Yes. Like a modern one where, you know, you know, you know. Um, but like, there is so much going on in Bard and Fink. And there are so many disparate themes that layer themselves throughout it. Mm-hmm. So much, like, I think you do miss a lot of them the first couple times you watch it. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I, I just find it fascinating that like, that's their, okay, let's take a break from this and like, which is... <laughs> really fucking deep uh like <laughs> period drama sur- existentialist surrealist uh uh-huh. you know, fucking movie set in the 40s uh with all these various scenes and like all these various allusions to real life writers and figures so yeah. yeah, yeah. I like how it kind of breaks down the idea of playwriting versus screenwriting. I like mm-hmm. that it kind of looks at that a little bit. And then also looks at these two people who could not be different enough. Like they're like opposite sides of the spectrum. Um, and they wrote, you know, the two characters for those two actors, mm-hmm. John Goodman, they're like, we need to have him in this because we have to weaponize his good person and his like jolly person persona in this Mm -hmm. film as in a not good person actually once once you get towards the end yeah i mean i think john goodman should have won every award imaginable yes uh because he is i mean just he's so warm and such a like warm moral center for the first half uh-huh. of the movie, and then he is so terrifying at the end. And just the, while well, still being the same character, it's not like it, uh-huh. it's not like a dime turn where like suddenly he just plays a different character. Like the first introduction of him, you're just terrified of him when he knocks on that door. And then you yeah. see that he switch and there's a couple different parts, little looks he gives, little lines he says, where there is something clearly off about it, but you're so taken mm-hmm. in by his big heartedness that at the end when he becomes Satan, maybe, um, yeah. you know, even then he's still going back and forth between this like angry, terrifying character and like, you know, a friendly guy. And, you know, it, it's, it's such a like layered performance and it's so brilliant. He definitely should have, you know, gotten an Oscar nomination. At least it's a crime. That yeah. he I just love this line that he says um, at the end when everything's burning down around them. He says, they say I'm a madman, but I'm not mad at anyone. Like, yeah. that's such a great line. And he gives such a great delivery yeah. of it. Yeah. It's like scary and sad at the same time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And then Taturo is just fantastic. Playing yes. a, very, a very different character from the one he would play in Miller's Crossing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which if you haven't seen that, I very much uh i think he will be very uh taken in by his performance in that it's very different but uh he gives he has one of the all-time great like pieces of dramatic like 
very big dramatic acting mm-hmm. in that. Um, and you'll know when you see it. But uh, you mentioned how, you know, it's about like, it, it, it's the difference between movies and theaters. And I find that particularly fascinating now in light of this last weekend mm-hmm. by uh, Ethan Cohen, uh, who has, you know, the Cohen brothers have the last, over the last couple of years, kind of parted ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Joel Cohen went on to direct Macbeth mm-hmm. by himself. And then Ethan Cohen has a movie coming out this year that he directed by himself. Mm-hmm. He wrote with, I believe, his wife or his partner, uh, Drive Away mm-hmm. Doll. But uh, before that, he'd, he'd done some theater. He's always done a little bit of theater. Ethan Cohen is, has done mm-hmm. a number of side projects. Um, and this is something I want to, I think it gives some insight into their writing process. Joel Cohen has kind of just, as far as I'm aware, has stuck pretty much to directing, um, mm-hmm. you know, from the beginning. From when they first started, uh, they were billed as co-producers on their movies. And then Ethan Cohen got the credit for screenwriting and Joel Cohen was given the directing credit. Uh, and they both edited under the pseudonym um, Roderick... <sighs> I forget the name, but like they had a, they made up a like editor. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. Um, and then I forget what movie it is uh, where they, where they decide to share credit on everything. Mm-hmm. Might be, might've been Fargo uh, or it might've been Hudsucker. But mm. Um, at some point they eventually share credit on everything. And from what I've heard about their process, they really kind of do do both at the same time. And before I think they had just said it had been an easier thing to like with the guilds or whatever. Um, from, from actors, they say like, it's like being directed by like a two headed person. Like they'll finish each other's <laughs> sentence. And I don't know, I, I know less about their writing process because they are not necessarily the most, uh, you know, open of, interview subjects they give interviews and stuff, they, they don't are really, not they're not the type to like talk about what their movies mean or to really give a lot of behind the scenes things and i really respect them for that uh i wish more directors would approach it like they do or david lynch does um however i do think you can see some of what they each put in if you were to go off of ethan cohen's outside projects which he's had mm-hmm. doing for decades now he has produced plays before he's written plays before one acts and mostly i don't think he's ever done a or at least hasn't produced a full-on like full-length uh stage Mm -hmm. drama but he's also published a book of short stories um Mm -hmm. poetry uh and he's written they both have screenplay credit on a couple other movies that they did not direct but ethan Mm -hmm. cohen has a couple on his own including uh the naked man which is a movie about a wrestler who undergoes like an existential crisis. Oh, uh, interesting. <laughs> you must love wrestling. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in like 20 years. Uh, I remember it, it had the feeling of a Coen Brothers movie without, uh-huh. without the Coens directing it. Uh, uh-huh. So you know, I remember it being like interesting and funny and okay, but like missing that you know, missing mm-hmm. that, that that special touch. I should probably go back and rewatch it. It might be a little hard to find now, but I just think it's funny that he kind of ends up writing uh, a version of uh, what ends up being the burly man in Bart and Fink. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think we've seen that. Um, 
through those things, you can kind of see some more of what Ethan Cohen as a writer tends mm-hmm. to bring to those scripts. Uh, and I, I, this is fresh in my mind because this last weekend, I saw a uh, hour long production of three one acts that he wrote. They had it in LA. Oh, and I saw okay. it. Wow. Hey, it was really funny. It was really funny. It was just these small one act plays. Um, but the last one was this like meta narrative, like kind of Russian doll type story about uh, theater where it starts okay. off. It starts off, it's like a debate between God and God. And one of them is a very Old Testament, white beard, white robe God. And the other one is like a much more sensitive kind of like new agey uh, speaker God. And they're having this very funny debate. Um, and it ends up with them like killing each other. And it's very funny, but it also feels like very intentionally juvenile. And then it pulls uh-huh. back and you see these, this couple watching the play. And then you follow them to dinner as they argue about it. And then when That's they're funny. Dinner, one of the actors playing God shows up and him and his uh, partner start arguing about it. And then it all just kind of like comes together. <laughs> so much of it is like actual dialogue about what the... yeah. Uh, what the point and what the uh, what what the meaning of theater is, and I think you get a lot of that in Bart and Fink. And what I like about it is it's not just in Bart and Fink particularly. It's not just the idea of like what is theater about. Like that would be an easy thing to do, and I I feel like we get certain movies now that try to address these topics or layer them in but they're so broad that you can tell it's just a thing that they put in for like to, to, to kind of give it like layers, but there's nothing specific about it. So yeah. For an example, if I use it, a, a counter example, and I'm probably rambling here, but I'll tie it back together. I promise. <laughs> the remake of Candyman is one that I think of. Cause I, I did yeah. not, not like that movie. I thought I, I think it's a bad movie. One of the things that annoyed me the most about it, was there was a lot of discussion about like the meaning of art in that movie because mm-hmm. the main character is an artist but nothing that anyone says in that movie has any specificity it's just these mm-hmm. broad uh you know comments about what art is and mm-hmm. most of it sounds like it's taken from you know like 2014 blog posts or yeah. twitter conversations and there's no specificity. It's just like, okay, we need these characters to argue about the meaning of art. Yeah. Right, and blah, blah, blah. In Bart and Fink, you have a, a very specific character very specifically arguing about his very specific ideas mm-hmm. about theater. And it's this idea based in the new theater of the 30s and 40s, which had mm-hmm. a focus on working class stories and had a socialist bent and all of these things. Um, and in the movie, you get that sense, and they don't take the time to explain it to you. Yeah, you, you're actually like these are the, the the dialogue in that movie feels like lived in real dialogue, even for as stylized as it is. Mm-hmm. There's a very stylized dialogue, very uh, screwball uh, comedy dialogue um, in terms of the rhythms and the pacing and the the terminology and the repetitions and whatnot. But the specifics of the dialogue are just that, they're specific. And that makes mm-hmm. it feel so much more real and fleshed out than I think the type of 
dialogue that we're used to now, where it's more like my dialogue, these people, you know, tend to write in a way that broadly defines their characters, but doesn't actually sketch them. Mm-hmm. Really, have always been. No, I, I completely understand. And I just love this quote about storytelling. And I, I quote it all the time. It's like, the more specific you are about a situation or art, the more universal it is. And that, yeah. that is exactly what you're talking about. And I, I, the part about Barton Fink, which is so funny is that he does always talk about, and, and, and it, as you said, like it, it cues you in right away with the little snippet you get about the play about them being, you know, working class and their little dialogue. You can, you can understand that. And then it kind and then he is talks about it with his friends in the next scene, next scene where they're in the like, super fancy restaurant. And he was just like, I want to be able to talk about the everyman. And it's just like these little details that trickle through the movie that show you that he has this need to um to tell these stories even though he has no idea what these stories actually are because he's not really a working man and that's also the great uh interplay that's in between him and john goodman because he says stuff to him like you're so lucky you don't have to use your brain to work or so he says something along those lines i'm paraphrasing when he talks to john goodman and he says it like it's a compliment but it's really a put down in like this way of like him kind of being like putting himself on a different level from all these people as he does the whole time he's in hollywood and it's and and then it kind of breaks him down over time until he really realizes what it's like when he's in this extremely fearful uh uh situation with the dead body and everything and he's really down to a different level where he's able to be like okay now i can really release the creativity that i'm that i've been wanting to release this whole time yeah and i think what's so interesting about it it's like it's a very easy character arc to follow like it's it's more yeah. explicit than some of their other ones like john goodman basically lays it out when he says because you don't listen like you mm -hmm. you, you know mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, it's very like, okay, that's the arc that he goes to. He realizes like he's a phony and like whatever, which but at the same time, they don't make it so simple as he's just a pure phony who's talking like he yeah. believes what he says. He does believe it. And there's nothing to indicate that he doesn't actually come from that working class background. Like it seems like he yeah. actually does. He mentions that his parents and Uncle Morty, you know, they live, you know, in, in New York, like, you know, I think it'd be in a, in a hackier version of this, they would make him a rich kid yes and you know they would make him a phony who betrays his cause at the first job i had i like that they don't do this in this like it's just it's more like he's been disconnected mm -hmm. well it's also that he's an ideologue and i think yeah, that the uh -huh. have very much have an opinion that uh is not a very popular one these days it's one that i share but it is not the, the going one which is that ideology and art generally do not work well together mm -hmm. i don't think that fellows that is not a opinion that i think is very popular these days i think when there's a refrain that people are very quick to throw out um these days which is that all art is political um mm -hmm. i do not i do not think that is the case uh i think that it is impossible to get people to agree on what even counts as art most of the time like mm -hmm. a definition of, there's no you know universally 
or even widely accepted definition of what art is. People are still arguing yeah. about, you know, Duchamp, you know, putting the urinal on display. <laughs> so for people to say all art is any one thing to me is like such a, such a leap. And so, so yeah. you know, I don't know how you, how you get that. And more than that, I think when you reduce all art to politics, because of the nature of politics and the nature of ideology, which is, you know, moving uh, the world towards a certain goal. Mm -hmm. If all art falls under that, then art is just an arm of politics and mm -hmm. art is just politics then. And I'm so I, I refuse to accept that. I think art is its own thing. Now, that being said, I do agree most art these days has a political uh, element to it, if not a mm -hmm. if not the you know if not a political ideology that it is trying to express first and foremost mm -hmm. and i think that's done i don't, generally don't think they do it well um and certainly mm -hmm. you can bring any political reading to art whether or not you know it's sustained by any actual you know I, whether or not it's a sustainable reading of it uh or a convincing reading you can still bring that to it but I suspect that the Coen brothers uh, would probably agree, prob prob like I would agree with them. I'm not saying they'd agree with me like egotistically. I'm just saying, I think they would, <laughs> I think you see it in a couple of their movies, this one being the main one and uh, the other one appropriately enough being um, uh, uh, Hail Caesar, which is set mm -hmm. a decade later in the same position. And much like Bart and Fink is this socialist, firebrand socialist ideologue that the movie goes very take takes the goes out of its way to take the piss out of. You see the same thing in uh, Hail Caesar with the cabal of like communist screenwriters. That it, mm -hmm. and, and the thing is, that now you could argue that like, well, them focusing on that is itself a political statement. Maybe, maybe not. But the thing is that I think people have this idea that like, if you're going to do you, if, you, if, if you're going to use any sort of political theme or plot point or use politics for character development, you're supposed to take a side. And I think mm -hmm. the Coen brothers are more interested in just taking the piss. You mm -hmm. know, like they're not writing Barton Fink as a combination of socialist screenwriter, like socialist, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, socialist literary theory. They're not, they're not coming out as like, oh, look at this phony. This is what we think of, you know, this type of socialist, liberal, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. I think it's more just them. You know, this is a character type. This is an archetype. Um, and there's a lot that you can take the piss out of. Like there's, you know, at the same time, they're also very much clearly not on the moral side of the studio bigwig that looks at, mm -hmm. uh, movies as you know just you know this trajectory or just this uh, uh conveyor belt of cheap product like they're clearly not taking that side so i think it's more just like here are these here here are these archetypes here are these character types based on real people uh barton fink clearly is inspired by clifford odette's both mm -hmm. uh in terms of his uh politics in terms of his like what biography we get of him and in particular the way he looks if you ever look up a picture of Clifford Odets who was a, <laughs> uh, a playwright who wrote the Three Penny Opera amongst others uh, very much you know theater for and about the proletariat 
you know, communist, I think, uh, or at least a uh, fellow traveler, um, who then made the jump to screenwriting, uh, wrote one of the great screenplays of all time in uh, The Sweet Smell of Success. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when the blacklist happened, he ended up becoming a cooperative witness for them. He didn't, mm-hmm. didn't name names. He mm-hmm. didn't go the full Ilya Kazan route of naming names, but a lot of people felt betrayed uh, mm. by him. He was cooperative with them and he did talk about like, yeah, there are comics of Hollywood, blah, and that kind of, his reputation never really recovered after that. Uh, anyway, mm. if you take a look at his picture, he, he looks exactly like, almost exactly <laughs> like Montaturo as Gordon Fink. It, the hair is a little more pronounced in the movie. Um, but I don't think it's a coincidence that the name that they name him Fink and base him on a guy who kind of did betray his cause. If not, mm-hmm. if not full on, you know, betray his friends, he still he still when the when push camp shoved didn't really stand up for it. And I think you see that in the character of John Thoreau. But I think again, it's not so much a condemnation. I don't think this movie is you know daggers out for Clifford Odette. In fact, if anything, I think it's more of an homage to him. Uh, especially if you watch the Clifford Odette-ridden movie, The Big Knife, mm-hmm. um, which is this great melodrama, slightly noirish uh, film from the 50s uh, that has a quite a lot in common with Barton Fink. Um, it's about a former screenwriter, director, uh, who was like at one point a fervent political uh, you know, leftist who has since kind of betrayed that cause. It, 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 it's Odette's like, you know, him work hashing out, you know, his feelings about what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's like a, a studio big wig that comes and like kind of torments him and he feels washed up and he's got writer's block. And there is a a potential murder of a woman that comes like in the later half of it. Oh, that's so funny. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you can see you can see the DNA of that movie in Bart yeah. and Fink. So I don't think that Bart and Fink is, you know, this, oh, we're going to like, you know, this is an anti-socialist, anti. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, or, or and I don't think it's a. Uh, oh, we hate Clifford yet because he was a turncoat story either. I think it's them just being interested in this kind of broader mm-hmm. idea and then following it where, you know, the characters take them. And I think uh, they're more interested in the emotion and the human drama of it than they are any ideological pronouncements. Yeah, I, I would say to like the idea of the, I don't find a lot of their work really political, um, except for the fact when they just notate it as a fact of the character and a fact of the time. I find them to be more moralists. And I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not new in saying this. I'm this is very well known. They like a good morality tale, like obviously yeah. Fargo morality tale. This is very much about uh like what, and it even pointed out using the Bible and certain ideas, like this is a very much deals with morals as well. Even through like, oh brother, out thou, more inside Lewin Davis, like is that a good moral character? Like that's that's what they love and that's what they like to play with so much. So I think that they, I am, I'm with you. I don't think, I think we assign our own politics to art. I don't think unless an artist is being very distinct in the politics of their artwork, like you can state any kind of art as being political in every which way. You just have to be able to explain why you think it's that way. And 
that you could hold fast or it could not hold any water at all. So it totally depends on like where you're coming from. So I'm with you. I, when it comes to politics and art, I don't, I, I, I feel like every piece of art tells its own story and you have to be willing to listen to it. Um, and you connect with it in that way, or if you don't connect at all in that way. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that is one of the things that people always bring up with the film brothers that they are these like old school, old Testament moralists. Um, uh -huh. And I don't disagree that that's, that that is a element of their movies. However, I do think when you're taking the overview of it, I think that they're more interested in the, the kind of like cosmic joke at the center Mm -hmm. of that morality mm -hmm. than they are about the actual like morality itself i think that they are guys yeah absolutely probably, yeah i think that they're guys who probably read at some point uh the story of job of job mm -hmm. and thought it was the funniest thing that they ever read because yeah. they can they are not sentimental when it comes to character and they get some of their biggest laughs from just it's like, you know, having their characters be killed off in the most brutal ways mm -hmm. or having them just like break down and cry at times. And mm -hmm. like, you know, like, and I think it's it's more a case of like, they, they find that the way that human beings just continually struggle against their nature and always fail. Mm -hmm. And then this like kind of cruel God in some cases or uh, you know, just, you know, kind of cosmic uh, higher power, the universe, mm -hmm. whatever calls it, like has no sympathy for them at the end. It's a very capricious <laughs> world. Uh, I think that that's more of a thematic interest in that than I don't think that they're interested in being like, you know, here's a morality tale that you should follow. I think it's, they take a kind of, uh, uh, they, I think they kind of stand back from it a little bit and, and they're more well, interested. Yeah, in they, they point out I mean, that's why they're one of our best, like, black comedy directors that we have. Um, maybe, like, them and Danny DeVito are, like, the only really successful ones in the last, like, 25 years or whatever. Um, but they are absolutely able to play with it. And and they don't, as we were talking about John Goodman and, and his final scene, which is, like, scary and heartbreaking all at the same time, like, you don't sense any judgment on really even on that character as he kills the people and leaves the the box which you assume the head is in it you know yeah. <laughs> with barton fink yeah i think that they love all of their characters too yes. much um even as they put them through hell uh, yeah you know for them to be like they're not michael haneke who i like <laughs> yes like, i do I'm, I, I'm a fan of michael haneke but like that is a he is a moral Mm -hmm. oh, like he is he is a he, he is a moralist filmmaker who is very much about driving your nose into mm -hmm. that i don't think that the coen brothers fall into that i think they just they tell stories that are set in an old testament universe yeah um because that's the universe that interests them but it's also it's a it's weird because it's a, it's the i think the other big influence that you see on their work especially barton fink and it's not necessarily okay well let, let me let me rephrase that there i think there are two other the, obviously there's a lot of uh biblical mm -hmm. references about their movies um barton fink 
and the serious man in particular, and also, uh, um, uh, uh, weirdly enough, uh, Hail Caesar, which is, mm -hmm. in my opinion, one of the great Catholic movies ever made. Uh, <laughs> guys from Minnesota, I think it's a fascinating Catholic parable. Um, but on top of that, I think one of the reasons that, that, that people look at their movies and see them rally is because their biggest influence is crime literature mm -hmm. of the early, like of the post early, like 30s and then through the post-war era. I, I wrote an article about this um, when Macbeth was coming out based on a quote from Joel Cohen saying that like, those were the books that he grew up and I assume then mm -hmm. I grew up like, and they're the basis for basically what would become film noir, you know, uh, Dashiell Hammett, uh, who came up with the line Blood Simple, which they used for their first, the title of their first movie. Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, James M. Cain, who they have, uh, who you just see his, you know, he wrote uh, Double Indemnity, Postman Always Wings Twice, Mildred Pierce, and you see so much of his influence throughout their movies, up to where the man who wasn't there is kind of a feature-length homage to all of his work and the films that they, his work inspired. Uh, Raymond Chandler, Big Sleep, uh, Long Goodbye, which you see obviously is uh, Big Lebowski is their mm -hmm. owner comedy take on that. Like seriously, read the read the Big Sleep and then or watch the Humphrey Bogart movie and then watch the Big Lebowski. Mm -hmm. and there's so much more connections than you even really <laughs> oh, it's kind of like a, a yeah. Take. Um, so the, I I think that's their biggest the film noir and and crime literature and uh -huh. in film noir and crime literature. There is a very Old Testament morality to that stuff. Mm -hmm. Partly because that's what the movies had to do in order to meet the Hayes Code. You see it more in those movies, but even in the books themselves, generally it ends, you know, like Kane's stories always end with like his, you know, low rent criminal lovers, you know, ending up dying by their own hands or, you know. <laughs> James Elroy, the the writer, mm -hmm. uh, writer of LA Confidential and Black Dahlia, he described it as, he, he said, you know, people think that film noir is, you know, hot dames and femme fatales and like guys in trench coats and top hats and like all <laughs> this window dressing. He did, he described film noir very simply, film noir and uh, noir literature is, uh, you're fucked and it's, uh, you, you, yeah, you see he described it as like, you're in love and you're fucked. Or mm -hmm. you're sexy and you're fucked. Yeah. Like, but basically, at the end of the day, you are fucked. Uh -huh. that's, that's the idea. That's what film noir. That's what noir really is about. Yeah. Uh, you want something, and you're wanting it will fuck you in the end. And that's a very Old Testament morality. And so I yeah. think Coen Brothers, who always have this through line of film noir, film noir and slapstick, and uh, you know that's that's that morality that's going to come through there no matter what. And people look at it as you know this you know their moral stance when it's like i don't know if that's the case as much as that's the 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 universal archetype that they're just interested in and yeah those are the laws by which it is governed and it doesn't those stories don't really work if they go outside of that like you can have a noir with a happy ending but it it, it generally doesn't work as well you know <laughs> and the, ones, the movies that do have happy endings are generally more of the ones that are influenced by like slapstick or screwball comedy yeah you know so i think that that's where they're kind of coming from and in barton fink uh that is not a straight crime movie that's not a straight noir in the same way that maybe blood simple or miller's crossing mm -hmm. or for all men are but it is certainly noirish in its 
uh, styling and its kind of overarching uh, theme and feel and mood. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is influenced by um, some noir stuff. Like uh, they, they talked about one of the big influences in the writing of it is a Jim Thompson noir novel uh, called A Swell Looking Babe. Uh, <laughs> what a title. <laughs> Which itself uh, turned into a pretty good movie, uh, neo noir in the late '90s or early 2000s, called "Hit Me" from the mm -hmm. director secretary. Good movie, mm -hmm. uh, not as good, not, not that doesn't fully work, but uh, good movie. It's it's a hotel set noir where okay. it's like employed in this empty hotel. So they talk about that being a big influence on Barton Fink. Um, yeah, I, I love the hotel part of this and the fact that. I don't remember this from watching it last time, but like watching it this time, them feeling extremely alone in this city that's supposedly supposed to be like busy, packed with people, always working on a new film. And like, even when they meet with executives and stuff, it feels very like small, just them and those people. And it, and so, I got a lot of like Kubrick from watching this film from the obvious like hotel setting, but also from like the idea of making someone who's kind of despicable, a likable character, like being able to work that in. It felt very much like that. I just, I, I think, um, yeah, it was kind of fabulous, but I also wanted to touch base on like their whole, you brought it up a little while ago, but I wanted to jump in about it, about how they're not very good about like talking about, their work <laughs> and how and how they really don't like giving interviews so i was trying to look up a few interviews with them and they have this one if you can look it up you should watch it it's really funny because it's really awkward um it's them and dick cavett and john deturo uh talking about this movie and they like really and he talks to them about how they don't what they're like people say you don't like talking about your work and they're like no we don't like talking about our work because it makes us feel like we're doing the work for them and i was like that's really funny um but yeah they're also and it's just a, such an awkwardly funny interview because you can tell they really don't want to be there and they don't want to talk about it all but dick cavett is like such a professional that he's able to get them to like kind of talk about it a little bit it's, it's a great interview um but they also talked a little bit about how when they start a film they don't do an outline they just start off with the first part like the jumping off point which is so reflective in this film because it's exactly what barton fink does he doesn't know what like how to start an outline in this yeah. movie and i love that scene is such a great scene i love that scene with him and judy davis yeah i i agree and uh what i think is Funny. I think you can see that in almost all of their work, uh, uh -huh. exception of their adaptations. Um, they're all, they don't follow anything sort of like a traditional plot structure for the most point. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they all feel very character driven. Like mm -hmm. these are all movies in which the action is defined by the characters. And I think that that is in most, any, I think anything that is any movie or book that you can think of that where you really like feel a deep connection to it, I think that that's kind of the through line through most of that um, is letting the characters dictate where the story goes. And it, it, as a writer, you might have like, I kind of know where I want the story to end, scenes mm -hmm. planned out. But if you're really, if you're connecting to the story as a writer, that stuff is going to change mm -hmm. as it goes along because the characters are going to dictate it and like any number of 
writers will tell you that that is how they work. And so that doesn't surprise me at all. Some some writers do work off an outline. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but yeah, it does not surprise me that they don't. What I think is funny is that in Bart and Fink, he ends up just, it seems like he kind of just ends up rewriting his play. Uh, yes, right? Like the last line is the same, the opening, you know, like the, we'll hear from that kid and I don't mean a postcard. So the joke is that like this guy might just, he says at one point, maybe I only have that one story. Like he might uh -huh. be, and he might be. But one of the things I love about this movie and this covers a lot of ground in it is they don't give you any easy read. Yeah. You just say Barton Fink is a hack who only writes the one story. Cause they give you other clues that maybe he is because all right, for example, like when he comes in and he sees the two detectives, uh, which it, it took me a while to catch this, but um, the two anti-Semitic detectives. Yeah. Uh, I forget their exact names, but one is uh, an Italian name and one is a German name. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the World War II stuff starts coming in more and more. And there's the, you know, to where John Goodman says the Heil Hitler line. Mm -hmm. And it's clearly after Pearl Harbor, just after Pearl Harbor has happened. There's this like theme of fascism creeping in mm -hmm. throughout the movie. Um, but yeah, so I think that's interesting that the, the two detectives uh, have an Italian and German name. But um, when he comes in to find them reading his script, the one makes the like jerk remark of like, I thought you said he was a writer. But then yeah. the other one has the line where he says, I don't know, Lou, yeah. I'm pretty good. Yeah. And that doesn't seem like a like a back and forth thing. Like, cause why would he say that if they're yeah. just mean to him? Like, so on the one hand, yeah, it seems like he just rewrote his play and maybe he's just kind of a hack. But on the other hand, you have that detective saying that, which makes you think like, well, maybe he actually did write a masterpiece. <laughs> I, and that's why I love I love that about this movie in particular is there's no they give you so many contradictory things like how does okay so we get the sense that yeah John Goodman probably kills uh Judy Davis's character yeah but how yeah no exactly like, how does he sneak into the room how does he does he stab her yeah they don't, they don't say if she stabbed or and like they say that his mo is he shoots people he yeah he, so the shotgun and then cuts their head off. And how does he manage to do that without Barton Fink waking up? And yeah. more than that, like the scene that always gets me is like when he walks into the room, the camera stays on John Goodman's character, Charlie. It stays on Charlie as he sees the body and he mm -hmm. has that horrified reaction. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like he's faking it because like mm -hmm. Barton Fink is behind him. He can't see his facial reaction. Yeah. Maybe that's just a cheat to like get the audience to not suspect it so they don't see that third act twist coming because that third act twist really comes yeah. hard and like, <laughs> you're not expecting it. Yes. Time. So maybe that's just a cheat, maybe it is. And it's a fair cheat if so, because it's one that can be explained as like mm -hmm. he's acting. But like on the other hand, there's something about it where it's like, hey, maybe it's not like, maybe Varden did kill her. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Her. I don't know, you know, like is, is it's, you can't, it's not one of those movies where it's like, oh, the hotel is hell or it's all a dream mm -hmm. or like, no, they don't, they don't give you any of those easy outs. It's, it's, it's a mystery that doesn't have any answers. And every time you think you find one, there's going to be something else mm -hmm. that contradicts that. That's a very hard thing to do. And it's a very hard thing to do. Well, I think, uh, you know, Lynch is the one who does it best with Coen brothers and Kubrick and certain other directors who kind of work in this surrealist space, but not, like a full on 
surrealism necessarily. Yeah. The way that we think like of like Louis Bunuel, mm-hmm. you know, or other ones like that. Like they 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 figure out this way to do it. It's it's a very I, I love that almost more than anything. I think the movie that Bart and Fink has the most in common with is David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch, which came out the same year, a couple months mm-hmm. apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they both have that same feeling of like, every time you think you figured it out, like this means, <laughs> or this is, you know, a dream, or this is a metaphor for that, or blah, blah, blah. Like there's something else in both of those movies that's gonna be like, nope, because then that doesn't yeah. work with that. I mean, those movies are so similar in a stylistic sense too. Um, and they both obviously feature uh, Judy Davis. Mm-hmm. In a very similar role, where she is the kind of muse and lover of these uh, tall, skinny, <laughs> looking men who dies, and her death is the catalyst for them to mm-hmm. finish this work that they've been doing. So, you know, the fact that those two movies came out so close to each other, I think it adds to like this weird, uncanny sense that both mm-hmm. of those movies contain, to where, again, it's not just that the stuff in the movies is weird and uncanny and mysterious. It's the movies themselves. Mm-hmm. They have that feeling. And like a good work of art, when it feels kind of like a magical object, I'm flying off yeah. the like when it, feels, <laughs> when it has that sense of like, when the word itself, the thing itself has this numinous power that mm-hmm. extends outside of just the content, like that to me is the best thing. Like it, when you find something like that, it's like the best feeling in the world uh and yeah i think Barton Fink has that in space yeah I, I i am fascinated by the whole judy davis death part because it's something that doesn't like you could potentially take that part out of the movie and generally it would still kind of work mm-hmm. like it would still kind of work but it adds this other level of kind of, as you said, like surreality about like what is happening in this movie and what's happening to Barton Fink. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in my in my interpretation of it, I feel like he definitely killed her. <laughs> Maybe not realizing it or is like some kind of, you know, whatever fugue state. Um, because I really, it, it doesn't match anything that's happening. Because I feel like the reason that him and John Goodman are kind of become so in sync with each other at the same time is they're kind of they're able to be two sides of the same coin and then kind of slowly reveal themselves to each other. And they feel that automatic comfort. Mm -hmm. And so like maybe being around this other energy is able to have him be like, allow this part of himself to be released. Yeah. You know, I I generally hate the theories of like, it all happens in someone's head. Yeah. In a case like this, it's like, well, if you look at it, like no one it's, it's, the only other people that are ever with him and Charlie at the same time are the two detectives. But the only yeah. people that he, like, and he does get a phone call that they're downstairs waiting for him, which is yeah. another of contradictions. Because otherwise you could say, well, he only ever sees, no one else is with him when he sees the yeah. detectives. They're all just figments of his imagination. But again, I like that they're like, no, he gets that phone call from Chet. Yeah. And that they're down there waiting for him. In the original screenplay for Bart and Fink, which is almost exactly what you, at least the version yeah. that you can online it's mm-hmm. almost exactly what is on screen yeah uh, as with most coen brothers like down to the pauses and the uhs and the, and the dialogue they're very exacting uh on their screenplays 
there's a couple lines like in any movie there's maybe like a line here or a little scene here that get cut and one of them that they cut that's in the script is the elevator guy charlie i think the one he asked yeah. like you read the bible he's like yeah i've heard of it anyway during that final scene with the flames and the inferno mm -hmm. before uh charlie comes out of the charlie sorry charlie is a uh, john goodman's character before john goodman's character comes out the elevator man first walks out and it, the way they describe it is amazing. And I'm, I'm kind of bummed it's not in the movie because of this, but he walks out staggering with his hands on his head and then he trips and pitches forward and his head comes off <gasps> and he's like holding it in his hands and then it like rolls down and then Charlie comes up. <laughs> in original script, he kills the elevator. Yeah. And that's such a cool visual. Uh, but yeah. the, um, if you do that, then it makes it, okay, this actually has to be like literally happening because that's yeah. a third character. Yeah, it like, it like solidifies yeah. the story, but in a bad way. Yeah, so I'm kind of glad they took it out, yeah. although that was amazing. That's and a good visual. Yeah, because like the part, the, the hotel's on fire, Yeah, but it doesn't seem like it's burning down. Like it's <laughs> still working there. Yeah. That if you go back tomorrow, Chet will be there and the hotel will still be standing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those things of like, yeah, you can't really have one of those other characters getting killed by Charlie because it kind of, it yeah, it makes it too literal. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I want to yeah, ask, ask you about what you think about the woman in the picture. I don't even like. <laughs> yeah, it's like, kind like, of a weird note. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Um, I, I I just let that one just kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things of like the last the last thing the last movement you see is the bird behind her mm -hmm. flying up and then so i've seen people argue about this online as to whether it's just a seagull diving for food mm -hmm. or if it's dropping dead mm. and i don't know it might have <laughs> or maybe it was like that was just an actual thing that happened that they filmed but that shouldn't really matter because they leave it in the movie Mm -hmm. Oh, is it? If it is a bird that's just dropping down, okay, that's like that's one explanation for it. And I, what that says, what's that supposed to say? I'm not sure. But if the reading is it drops dead, then you can read it as it hits the. They're in that painting, and it, mm -hmm. it hits the ceiling of the like. It hits the. Yeah. the there's nowhere to go beyond it, and then it drops down. So like, it's he now. You know, like it's it's again, it's one of those things like there's they don't give you an answer. They give you a couple. Yeah, there's a couple different interpretations. They mm. all work and they all also kind of don't work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, like it's one of the great enigmatic last scenes uh, of a movie. And honestly, I feel like it's one of those things that they probably just like had this idea and yeah. they just followed their intuition on it. I think it's, I think it's a perfect way to end that movie. I, I, I personally just like it on a kind of mind trickery of the visuals and the audio because it makes it the first time he looks at it, you can hear the ocean and nothing's moving, but it feels like there's something moving. It plays that trick on your mind. And then also when they're in the, the detectives are in his room and that one other detective is looking at the picture as the other guy is reading the script, he's the one who says he likes it. And he's also says he likes the, he likes the picture also. And I think that's just, it's just like a funny little note that this yeah. guy, this one guy kind of like, is like, oh, I don't know, maybe I like this stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's one of those little character notes that like, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I don't, but that that ending is so, I don't know, like, it's just one of those ones, like, I, I think you're, you're, I think it's a fool's errand to try to, like, suss out. Yeah, I think so, actual too. Meeting. I think so, too. I just thought I would ask, like, because it's such a big part of it, mm-hmm. uh, it kind of, like, sets off the story and then obviously ends the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's maybe something important about her laughing off his thing about, do you yeah. work, is like, don't be ridiculous. Like, <laughs> yes. She is a picture. Yes. She's literally a picture. Yeah. Uh, That's funny. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of little <laughs> stuff like that. Like, yeah. it, it seems obvious at first, but it just goes like, I rewatching it this time, I didn't realize how many references there are to people losing their heads. Yes. Throughout the movie. Like, yeah. constantly peppered throughout. Of, of <laughs> just little lines of like, oh, he lost his head over this thing, or like, yeah, like, like, oh, it makes me like, I think um, Mayhew, the, the Faulkner uh, stand, it says, like, it makes me want to rip my own head off and run down the street, like, blah, 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 and then he'll end up <laughs> like, there's so many little things like that uh, throughout. Um, it's it, it's extremely subtle, and we got to shout out, like, all the amazing character actors they also mm-hmm. have in this, like, Michael Lerner, Tonal Shalhoub, John Mahoney, Steve Buscemi, like, it's just kind of amazing, even though it still is a small movie, it's kind yeah. of like, these big actors take up all the space. It, it's stunning. I, I don't know who has, though. I think Goodman is obviously yeah. the performance that, like, is the towering performance of this movie, I think. Uh, I mean, everyone in this movie, uh, I think Judy Davis is one of the, just one of the most underrated actors of that mm-hmm. time. Incredible in this. But outside of uh, early and sure, I, I of those ones, like, Lerner's so good, but, like, my favorite it's a toss-up between me for my favorite line and favorite line delivery in the movie uh which is uh either a tony shalhoub <laughs> saying uh you know either the, the wallace berry what do you need like road rest of picture wallace berry what do you need a road map <laughs> or his or his uh if you throw a rock like if you throw a rock in this town you'll hit a writer <laughs> yeah. do me a favor throw it hard <laughs> It's the funniest line. Um, but then also, like, this is maybe just my favorite written line of dialogue in the movie. It does a thing that, like, it's so good, and I it's so hard to do well. So it doesn't surprise me that there's you don't come across it that often. But it's the type of line that is just pure poetry, and it, it it's, it's the most interesting way to say a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is when he's taught when he first meets Mayhew in the bathroom after he's just vomited. And he's like, I didn't know you were out here. And he says to him, all of us like writers or all of us wayward scribes, but he says like, we all eventually make our way out to the great salt lick. Perhaps mm-hmm. that's why I have such a powerful thirst. Like it's such a beautiful metaphor. Uh-huh. And it's such a beautiful way of saying the thing, which is like, yeah, we all come out here for the m- easy money yeah you know and but to, to layer it into his alcoholism like it, it reminds me of like the best lines of like a david milch thing like in deadwood where you would have a character saying a thing where it would basically be like oh i need to do this but you would find the most like poetic way to phrase it <laughs> yeah where you have to really like because that line just might go like it's got that line went over my head i'm sure the first yeah. time you thought like the great salt lick yeah. Like, and then, you know, like eventually when you stop, it's just, and this movie is peppered with lines like this, especially give a lot to that character. 
Mm-hmm. Which is just the best Faulkner, like yes, type. Um, as a huge Faulkner fan, like I get such a kick out of this movie, <laughs> just the way. And like, it's a pretty good. But if you know anything about Faulkner, like, it's uh, yeah, he was a pretty bad drunk like that. I've never heard anything of him not writing his own stuff. That's that yeah. is the thing they brought in uh, for the plot. But otherwise, like, that's that's a that's a pretty accurate depiction of <laughs> William Faulkner. <laughs> Of um, gross drunks at that time, gross successful drunks. But like the way he would get drunk, uh, yeah. You know, he's one of those like crying weepy. He was one of those crying, mm. falling around, uh, drunks. Um, hey, it could be worse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like at the same time, like yeah, maybe the best novelist this country ever produced. So yeah, you know. Uh, and and it, it totally plays into that idea of like great art comes from yeah. our like most insane minds that have so much going on that you know they have these demons like alcoholism yeah well i like too that they don't but they he takes a stance against Barton thing where he's the one like you know that has the personal problem stuff and he's he's like i don't think writing's fan i think it gives me relief and i and i think that's more of a that's kind of like that was hemingway's thing yeah he drank because he couldn't write Mm -hmm. Uh, faulkner actually is the only writer i've ever heard of the only successful writer I've ever heard of that could actually write good uh-huh. work while drinking. Wow, um, that's amazing. Yeah, Hemingway drank when he wasn't writing. Yes. He specifically drank more when he couldn't write. Uh, mm-hmm. Other ones like Raymond uh, Carver and those guys, you know, they didn't. They weren't writing well drunk. Yeah. Faulkner, <laughs> I, I do think he is maybe the best novelist in America ever, but you can tell when he's hit that third yeah it <laughs> can already be very uh, difficult yeah so it's hard to tell but there's once in a while where you're like all right he's on that third glass of, of, of now. <laughs> uh, i can tell yeah well that's great well do you have any like final thoughts or anything you wanted to tap in on before we wrap it up um i would just uh i would recommend this this is not one of those Coen brother movies that you hear about bandied about. Yeah, you really don't. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's by any means obscure. It won the Palme d'Or. Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 it did. Okay. I think for the type of movie it was, it's obviously, it's such a it, the period detail is beautiful, mm-hmm. but like you would mention, they keep everything pretty like just a couple of sets, you know, you don't get any sweeping shots of Los Angeles with the yeah. old cars driving down and the old buildings like it's all it's all very it's a very interior movie by design it's all people in rooms um basically yeah and they don't try and like make it look period besides mm-hmm. like the costumes and stuff like that's something that kind of can annoy me sometimes is like when they're like trying to add certain filters or whatever to yeah. like make it look like that and of course this is shot by roger deakins of course one of the greats when uh barry sonnenfeld left to do adam's family he stepped in and you know did a great job obviously but um yeah it's it's a great movie i hope everyone like seeks it out if they haven't already and takes a second year to some of those great little quippy lines yeah i mean i just i love the look of the movie because it's like they let the they let the color of the sets and the costumes yeah serve as the color for the movie. It, it it's I love this and those crossing. Look have that like brown green, like deep rich 
but kind of muddy, sickly yellow. Yeah. Naked Lunch has that same uh, color palette, but it's all costuming and lighting. Yeah. And uh, set design. Whereas now, if you watch something like, God, what was that awful? Okay, granted, I didn't see it, so I should probably shouldn't be. Kidding, but uh, <laughs> the the David, uh, God, the um, the one with Christian Bale and Margaret Mar uh, Margot Robbie. Oh, like, Amsterdam. 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 <laughs> you watch the trailer. It looks like a shitty. It looks like the visuals are like a shitty version of Barton. Yes. And a shitty version of Miller Crossing. It's because the filter of you know like the yeah color correction filter which look the coen brothers kind of responsible for that because the color yeah. correction they did on oh brother where art thou then yep. that was like the big breakthrough for that and then every movie kind of used that that or a different kind of color correction filter so you know they're yeah they're blame. but like you, when you see that these days and even to an extent i think coen brothers movies still look great yeah but I do kind of miss when they didn't rely on that filtering so much. Yeah. It was more just let the lighting and the, the actual stuff inside the frame, uh, you know, using that for the look as opposed to this post-production color correction. Yeah, they kind of, I don't, I can't, I think, do they, I don't think they use it in Hell Caesar at all, but they do use it in Inside Lou and Davis, mm -hmm. obviously. That old kind of, yeah. Yeah. Which I think works. I think, I think Lou and Davis is a beautiful Yeah. Uh, I know, know too. The, the, the color correction doesn't always like when they do it or when Tarantino or Spielberg do it, you know, they know how to do it where yeah. they, they're still, they're, they're using it to enhance things. But I do kind of miss when everything looked a little softer and a little bit like, yeah, a little more texture to it. Yeah. As you said, like with Lynch and I did an episode on blue velvet last season and we talked about it and he was like, basically what we did, and it's very similar to this. It's like, we just let the costuming and the production design do the talking for us versus adding ex any extra grain or any of that stuff. And it just works so well in this movie. Yeah, I agree. Um, and yeah, and it's interesting that I think the last point that I make that I find very interesting is now that the Coen brothers have seemingly parted ways, although mm -hmm. I did read a recent interview where they said that they were probably going to do the next movie together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'm, I, I kind of, I think they are stronger together. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. So I really only have one movie to go off of on that idea, mm -hmm. which is Macbeth, which I think yeah. is fantastic. I love Macbeth. Um, yeah. But, and then we have Ethan Cohen's movie coming out this year, which yeah. I can't judge because I haven't seen it. But I will say from seeing the trailers, it does strike me now as like, okay, Joel Cohen struck out on his own. Mm -hmm. He made a very visually stunning movie in which the script is just William Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. He didn't do or much that. with that. <laughs> um, and then Ethan Cohen's movie, judging just off the trailer, looks like a fun coen brothers classic crime cape yeah and there's funny lines in it and it looks like it's very entertaining visually it does not look from yeah. those early looks it does not look visually very impressive yeah it, like the type of movie that if you just presented that trailer to me six years ago i'd be like oh is this one of those movies that the coens wrote that someone else directed yeah yeah so again, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe trailers aren't doing it justice and it turns yeah. out, oh no, this visually is a very well-made movie, but like, I'm going to guess that it's probably just like a decently made one that's missing that. So I, I think that you get the sense that like maybe Joel is the stronger uh -huh. 
in terms of shooting the actual like visual movie and that Ethan is stronger when it comes maybe a little bit more uh, in the writing process. Um, and then my guess is they're both probably very good working with like because what I've heard is like when the actors talk to them about them, yeah. they're like this this two headed single unit. Yeah. Yes, is they're both probably very good with actors, and then, but when it comes to the splitting of the, the the actual filming and the writing, it does seem like they each have a little bit. They bring their own strengths to both of those things. I mean, hey, that's everyone. We all bring our own strengths to something. We're all good at something, and it's good to find the right people to work with. Yeah, I was uh, I was thinking that that uh, the Ethan Cohen movie looked like a very Baby Driver esque, like mm-hmm. very, but like he was like, I can do that, but it'll be better. Like, I can write a better script than that. The trailer doesn't. The trailer's not the best cut trailer in the world. Yeah. Or but there's enough lines in there where I'm like, okay, I yeah. bet this is probably a really fun movie. And I'm, like, I'm excited to see it. It looks fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm all for more fun movies. We need more of those. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Do you want to plug your stuff and let people know where they can uh, find you and all that stuff? Yeah, uh, so uh, just, I'm so we'll see how much longer I'm on fucking twitter uh, i know yeah i i don't know um but i'm on there i generally just share my stuff on there it's zach underscore vasquez um and then uh you can find me if you want the only other one that i'm ever on at all is uh instagram which again is really just like sharing my work on there you know if i look particularly stupid (laughs) you find me there at zvasquez85 um yeah, I'm not, I'm not on Blue Sky or anything. I don't, if this all goes to hell, I'm, I'm not going to start over. <laughs> so. Your uh, brave soul. I appreciate yeah. that. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to chat with you about this. This is a great conversation. Um, you can find Schooled by Cinema at all the places and have a great day.